Well, amen indeed. I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn in them with me to John chapter 13 as we pick up our study here together. And uh, what a great time it has been for us to reflect already this morning on the wonder of Jesus and His love for us. And there are many wonderful things about that love that we will be discovering in this text that is before us this morning. But that is why we're here, is it not? It's to see the person of Jesus Christ and to learn how we might pattern our steps after His. And as you turn to John 13, I would just briefly make mention of the fact that as a church, we have a number of opportunities arranged for all of you to dig in a little deeper and learn more about who Jesus is and how you can follow Him. Here, starting up in a couple of weeks, the women's Bible studies will be getting going for the fall. That's a great time for you women to jump in and learn more of the Word of God to see the person of Jesus Christ more clearly. We've got options for you on Wednesday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday morning. So pretty much whatever your schedule, we've got an option for you. And for the men, the Forge will be starting up in just a few short weeks here as well as we study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and learn about the Spirit of Christ that has been given to us. would encourage all of you to think about that and see if those are opportunities of which you can take advantage. Uh, you can sign up for those things uh, on the website or on the Church Center app would encourage you to go ahead and do that. The ladies need to make plans appropriately for child care. And of course, the men need to make plans appropriately for our donut order. So go ahead and help us out with that. Now that we've got our priorities straight, let's go ahead and turn to uh, John chapter 13. You know, Grover Cleveland isn't really known for a whole lot. He wasn't the most reputable president or the most accomplished one that we've ever had. But he is known for one thing. And that's this. In 1893, at the Chicago World's Fair, Grover Cleveland stunned the world when he flipped a switch and caused 100,000 newfangled light bulbs to spring to life. It was an innovation at the time that seemed well-nigh miraculous in that day. And that's because the people of that day lived in a world that previously had been lit only by flame. And we're told by reporters from that event well over a hundred years ago that the fair had many important engineering milestones, but what visitors adored was the sheer beauty of seeing so many lights ignited in one place at one time. It was like getting a sudden vision of heaven. You see, in a world where light at night was foreign, the sight of brilliance in the darkness was striking for them. You see, in their world, the, the nighttime, the darkness, it could be a terrifying, fearful reality. And that fear was not one that was just relegated off to children's nurseries. No, the fear of the darkness, it gripped everyone equally because of the kind of danger that the darkness presented to a world without any kind of artificial light. You see, we can't fully understand the fear of the dark that people up until the modern day have always had because we've essentially eradicated the threat of the darkness. But a hundred years ago, or in the case of John 13, 2,000 years ago, the night held nothing but danger and fear because for them, the darkness could not be thwarted. 
and grasping that fearful reality, seeking to put ourselves into their shoes, that reality that is now so foreign to us, it is essential to rightly interpreting the text that is in front of us. Because to our enlightened eyes, you see, there is a tiny little statement here in the text that that to us seems to just be an innocuous statement of context. You can see it there in verse 30, where the Apostle John says down in John chapter 13, verse 30, and it was night. Doesn't seem to be a big deal, but it colors and shades everything in the text that is before us. It is a statement that would have struck fear and terror into the hearts of the original readers because, as I've said, a fear of the darkness was ubiquitous for them all. And you see, the text that's in front of us this morning is a text all about the terror of the darkness because the darkest night of all The inky, impenetrable dusk of the hardness of a human heart is going to be put on display here in this text for us. And we know that that's what John is pointing our attention to, that spiritual reality of terrifying darkness when he makes the statement, and it was night. We know that because he's made it a habit of using those kinds of contextual details to point ahead towards greater spiritual realities. You remember, for instance, back in John chapter 10, when the Jews rip the mask off of their unbelieving hardened hearts and they prove that they are cold stone, stone cold dead. And John says in that text, John chapter 10, verse 22, I believe, now it was winter. A statement that is just as much about their spiritual temperature as it is about the weather outside. You remember, for instance, back in John chapter 3, don't you? where John makes a similar statement using the exact same metaphor of being at nighttime, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and John makes a big deal about it being when? At night. You see, he's trying to paint some pictures for us, some context for the understanding that Nicodemus is stumbling around in the darkness even though he thinks that he can see. And so here in verse 30, when John says, now it was night, full stop, period, end of paragraph, that statement serves as a powerful commentary on the oppression of the moment that is right here in front of us. It's been carefully calibrated to strike fear, yes, a fear of the dark, into our hearts. And though you and I in our day may be too sophisticated to be afraid of the dark, the darkness he's pointing our attention to here, friends, it ought to terrify us. And that is what we're seeking to look at here this morning. How can we see the darkness? More importantly, How can we avoid being gripped, like Judas, by that darkness? Because today, here in this text, we're going to see a brilliant contrast between the love of Jesus and his light and the dark hatred of Judas. 
we're going to see the darkest heart that has ever existed compared to the brightest light ever revealed to mankind. We're going to see Judas, the only person who is ever recorded as having been indwelt by Satan himself compared to the brilliance of Christ's light and love. And it's by looking at that contrast between the person of Jesus and the person of Judas that this text is going to come to life and pop off the page for us together here this morning. And it's my hope that as we see the reality of Judas's heart of darkness, we will be terrified from it and seek to run away so that we might now be motivated to run over to the light and love of Christ that is so clearly put on display here for us in this text. And that's the first thing that I want us to see here as we get going together this morning. It's the light that exists in the midst of the darkness. Now in verse 2, You'll remember that we've already been told that Judas's heart is dark. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We know it. Jesus knows it. But the rest of the disciples in that room, they're clueless. They don't know it. For after all, how could they? And so the temptation for us here at this point could be to just say, forget Judas and show me Jesus. And rightly so. But friends, you have to understand that you cannot see the brilliance of who Jesus is until you first understand the darkness of the human heart. You see, it is the inherent darkness that resides within all of us. It is the inherent darkness that resided in Judas that serves as the black velvet causing the brilliance of the diamond of Christ's light to pop off this page. And so we can't just ignore Judas, but we also need to not just zero in on Judas. We also need to zero in on the brilliance of who Jesus Christ is. And that is where this text really begins. By setting the stage, yes, Judas's heart is dark, but Jesus's love is brighter. Let me show that to you here in these verses. Because after all, as John chapter 1 verse 5 has already told us this morning, the light... It is shining in the darkness, but the darkness can never overcome the light. That's the end of the story. Now let's go back to the beginning and look at it together. In the face of extreme darkness, nighttime here in this text, the light of Jesus is irrepressible. And we can see that brilliance on display right in the face and largely because of the black-hearted treachery of who Judas is. Look with me at verse 11 through 18. If you want to see and know the glory of Christ's light, just look at how in the face of the coming darkness, he clearly knows who belongs to him. See, Jesus is not out of control in this moment. It's not as though, oops, I lost one here in the text. No, Jesus knows exactly who every man in that room is and where they are coming from, and which of them have been cleaned already, and which of them have not been cleaned already. And that's what he says there in verse 11. He knew who was about to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. And then he goes on and he begins to talk to his men in the intervening verses. And he says, do you, verse 12, let's just read it for the sake of context, understand what I have done to you in washing your feet. 
You are calling me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But then he goes on and he says this. But I am not speaking of all of you. Not all of you are going to be blessed because not all of you are going to do these things. And then he goes on and points back to the reality of his knowledge. He says there in verse 18, I know whom I have what? Chosen. You see that there? You want to see the love of Jesus? Look at the way. You want to see the light of his glory? Look at the way that he is remaining in sovereign control, knowing everything about every person in that room. Look, his eyes have already, as we've seen, bored straight through Peter and burrowed down into the depths of his soul. And he has already pronounced a judgment on Peter, knowing the reality of Peter's pure heart. He says, you have been clean and blessed are you, Peter. But then his gaze swivels over to the left where Judas is sitting and he knows the reality of Judas too. Judas knows who Judas is. And so when Jesus says, not all of you, namely Judas, are clean, and not all of you, namely Judas, will be blessed, you have to imagine that Judas swallowed pretty hard in that moment because after all, he had already made arrangements to betray Jesus. He knew exactly who he was. And he rightly should have wondered, how could Jesus have known? How could he have known? Well, if Judas had been paying attention, he would have had the answer to his question because Jesus has been teaching us throughout the entire Gospel of John that he knows those who are his own and he also knows those who are not his own. Why? Because he chose us in him, Ephesians 1.4 tells us, before the very foundations of the world. And so Jesus knows everything about his followers in that room everything about Judas. And Jesus knows everything about every single one of you and what is going on in your own heart. See, Jesus knew that Peter, Andrew, James, and John, for instance, and the rest of them, they believed in him and were clean already. They were chosen by God and marked off for salvation and mercy. But Judas, Judas was not going to receive that same blessing. And Jesus knows the reality of who he is, the choices that he has made. He knows what Judas is up to and where he is going and what his eternal destiny is going to be. You see, up until this moment, Judas thinks that he's done a pretty bang-up job of covering his tracks. I've told no one after all. But still, Jesus somehow knows. You see, all of those darkest corners in Judas' heart, the ones where he sought to shove and push his grievous sin, even there the light of Christ shone and perceived the reality of who he was. Judas could not hide that from Jesus. That's the light of Christ. It shines down into the deepest and darkest recesses of your heart. And you might try to throw a coat of 
paint on the outside to make it look pretty good, but the reality is he sees through you. His eyes burrow into your soul, and he knows whether or not you have come to him for cleansing already, or whether or not you are in love with the darkness deep down. Jesus knows it all, and that, my friends, should cause us to stop and think, should it not? You see, there is no sin. There is no thought that escapes the notice of Jesus. He has chosen his own before the foundation of the world, and he knows everything about those who are his own. He also knows everything about those who are not his own and those who are walking in rebellion to him. That is the power of the light of Christ. Do you see it here in this text? But more than just the light of his knowledge that he knows those whom he has chosen. Take a look here at his sovereignty on display in verse 18. I mean, Jesus looks at the bared fangs of Judas's wicked heart, and yet the plan of Jesus is still fully and very much on track. You see, Jesus here is going to find out exactly from a human level what it is to be betrayed. And perhaps you know what it is to be betrayed, but you've never experienced a betrayal like the one that Jesus is about to experience here. And it would seem from a human level then that everything is about to blow up in his face. Everything is coming off the rails. But as we keep looking at the text and as we examine it carefully, we'll find out that Jesus is not off of track. Everything is entirely on track. And we can see that by looking at the passage that Jesus points back to here in Psalm 41. That's the text that Jesus is quoting here in the back half of verse 18. It's a psalm that's written by David. On a day when King David had been betrayed by his closest advisor, a man named Ahithophel, who sided with David's most beloved son, Absalom, and his closest advisor and his closest friend, his closest son, had combined forces to seek to dethrone and murder David. He had been betrayed. And David, in that day, had gone through all of those events with no clue that those events and the betrayal that was happening there in his own lifetime was really foreshadowing an event that would take place in the life of his future son, Jesus Christ. And yet, Jesus Christ had been there with David authoring the plan for David's life in such a way that it would point ahead towards what would happen when Christ would come. See, David didn't even know that. And so as he takes his pen in hand with a broken heart, he mourns his betrayal. He says, the one who sat at my table and ate my bread as a friend, receiving my tokens of love and friendship, he has now lifted up his heel against me. See, that's a statement of deep betrayal and mourning in the life of King David. But it's more than that. It is a messianic prophecy and foreshadowing of the very events that we find happening here in John chapter 13. You see, a thousand years before the betrayal of Judas, Jesus had already, in his sovereignty, engineered a perfect picture of what it is to be betrayed. For the righteous king to be betrayed by a close friend. He's not out of control. He's been in control for over a thousand years and longer. That's what Jesus is pointing to here in this text. But he does it in a way that shows the pain of the betrayal. See, the idiom that is being used here by David and now by Jesus is one that still holds true in the Middle East today. It, it has a picture, really, 
of a horse that's got its foot raised up and is getting ready to give you a, a kick, delivering what can only be a grievous injury. If you've been kicked by a horse, I hope you haven't, you know that they can do grievous injury by raising up their foot. But, but it refers really to, to more than that. It refers to the Middle Eastern custom of showing profound disrespect and betrayal to someone by showing them the bottom of your foot. You don't ever do that over in the Arab world. Do you remember the incident, for instance, back in 2008 when a journalist took off his shoe and threw it at the head of then President George W. Bush? This is the most profane insult that someone could imagine in that culture, and it shocked the Arab world. Now, we all kind of shrugged our shoulders and chuckled at the imagery of a president dodging shoes, but for them, it was a cringeworthy moment because of what it communicated. A reporter, gasp, has threatened and, and shown the President of the United States the bottom of his foot. He's lifted up his heel against him. And that's the idea here in the text. You see, it is with a grieved heart that Jesus points to the same reality. Someone is about to betray, insult, and disrespect me so that like King David, I receive a grievous injury. But none of that is outside of God's plan. After all, had this very event not been prophesied and forecasted over a thousand years prior, you see, in Judas's devious, wicked heart, he had been laying plans for the past 12 months to get Jesus. But Jesus, his plans had been laid for thousands of years since before creation. Everything here is under control. Do you not see the light of who Jesus is in the text? And that's where Jesus goes next. Verse 19, in the face of coming darkness, he is in control, which is why he says to his followers, I'm telling you this before it takes place, so that when it does, you might believe. And there's an emphasis there in the text on that very moment. Jesus uses three separate words to identify that moment in time. It's as though he's saying, I'm telling you this here and now, right now, mark my words because it's really important for you. Well, what is so important that they hear him right in the moment? Well, Jesus says, so that, it's a purpose statement, so that you may believe that I am he. Now, it's very important to notice here in the text as Jesus continues to reveal these things to his men, that that word he is supplied in the English to complete the sentence. But in the original language, that word he is absent. It reads this, so that you might know that I am. You see, it's the Old Testament, Exodus 3, name of God. Moses says to God, what's your name and who are you? And Yahweh comes to Moses and says, I am who I am. Yahweh is my name and that's how you will know me. You will know me as the great unending self-existing I am. He is the burning bush, God in a whirlwind, covenant-making, promise-keeping kind of God. And here in the face of the blackest night of his life, Jesus is saying, I am still the God of light, Yahweh himself, and I am not going to be caught off guard, not for a moment. In fact, gentlemen, I'm telling you these things right now so that once they happen, you might look back and believe that I am God. 
that God. You see, in the face of that kind of darkness, there shines the light of Jesus, undiminished, unfading, unflickering, so that they and we might know that He is the I Am, Yahweh, our God. You see, His light on full display, despite the fact that the darkness is coming for Him. But there's one more verse here before Jesus finishes speaking that we have to evaluate because it too shows us the light of who he is. You see, it's because he is their God and is in absolute control that he is able to make one final statement here in verse 20. And this one to me is stunning. It uncovers the brilliance of all of the glory of who your Jesus is. Look at verse 20 together with me. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You see, in the face of coming darkness, Jesus is still offering forgiveness. And that is how you know that he is the God of light from heaven. Now, I'll admit to you, I had a really hard time understanding what verse 20 has to do with anything Jesus has just said. And so did all of the commentators. As I was reading this for the first time this week, I got to verse 20 and I said, okay, this is clearly very important because Jesus drops a truly, truly truth bomb on us here. But but why is that statement placed here? It doesn't seem to be connected to all of the context. What what is going on here? And, And here is the key that we all need to understand in order to unlock the power of what he's saying here in verse 20. While this verse does relate to all of the faithful disciples in the room, and I'll explain how in just a second, it's primarily aimed at Judas. And I'm going to show you the impact of that in just a second. So let me explain here. Jesus is talking to two groups at once. The clean on the one hand, and the unclean Judas on the other. And here is what he says. See, the disciples who were just about to be sent out, they were very much confused by what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus, with this statement in verse 20, he is building their confidence by saying, look, whoever accepts you and the message that I give you receives and accepts me. And whoever receives and accepts me is accepted by the Father. You see, forgiveness from God is available to everyone who is willing to believe the message that I'm giving to you. But see, this verse, and again, this is the key. While it's applicable in the way I've just explained to the disciples, it isn't really being aimed at the disciples. It's being aimed at Judas. You see, I believe that this verse is one final appeal to the traitor before he reaches a point of no return where Jesus is making a clear offer here. It's as though he is shoving the roadmap to salvation into the wandering hands and heart of Judas, calling him to repent, saying, Judas, if you would just receive me, you would receive the life from the Father. And so in the same statement, on the one hand, to the clean, don't worry, men, if they receive you, they'll be received by the Father. He's also talking to Judas and throwing down the gauntlet. Judas, the thing you most need is to be received by me and forgiven by my Father. That's what he's pointing to. Do you not in that statement to Judas look at this Jesus and see the brilliance of his light? 
I mean, here he is, seconds away from being betrayed by this follower, and yet he is still willing to make an offer of forgiveness and reception to this unfaithful, hard-hearted, blackened one. That is your Jesus. You see, he knows who belongs to him. He's not caught off guard. His plan is still entirely on track as it has been for thousands of years. Here, in the face of this betrayal and even in this moment, he is still in control and is still the Yahweh God of heaven. And here he is offering forgiveness for a final time to the very man who is preparing to betray him. You see, in the face of the darkest night of his life, here stands your Jesus, brilliantly shining forth the nature, character, and glory of God. All the forces of evil having been marshaled against him, the the strike of the serpent poised and ready to go, Satan having been plotting for 4,000 years and thinking that, that he, the prince of darkness, is about to overcome the Lord of light. And yet, before that coming climactic moment, do you see, standing there in all the glory of his might, the brilliant, sovereign, merciful, gracious light of God from heaven shining into that room and into the hearts of both those who were his own and the one who was not. Friends, Jesus has already told us in this gospel, John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness but will have the light of life. When you see that offer, when you comprehend it and you look at a text like this that sees Jesus in the glory of who he truly is, how can your heart not rise in adoration and worship for the beauty of your Savior and King, Jesus Christ? We can see in this text the light that comes through Christ as he interacts with all of these men. That's who he is. But beyond the light of what he came to offer, I also want you to see the way that he offers it. Look with me here at these following verses, 21 through 26, because now, in addition to the light of God that he is shining there into the room, we also see a profound evidence of his love as well. Now, I know some of you are looking at the notes and you're looking at your clock and you're saying he is never going to get through the next three points in 20 minutes. Never fear. This is going to take us two weeks to get through all of this. But there is so much here that I want you to see about the glorious love of Jesus on display for these men and for you that it's worth not ramming our way through. Because as we go through these next couple of verses, you see, as John pushes play on the narrative movie that's in front of us here, the real and tangible love of Jesus is is on display in every single frame of what happens next. You see, even as he's being betrayed, his love, it never wavers. I mean, look, in the face of Judas's hate, I want you to see clearly the very real, powerful, profound love of Jesus now. And and you can see that love as we zero in here on some of the details that are given to us. Let's just pick this next section apart now. Right there in verse 21, right away, you can see the deep experience of emotion that Jesus is going through in this minute. 
After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified. He went on the record saying, Truly, truly, again, I say to you, one of you will betray me. See, the word that is used there for Jesus' spirit to be troubled is a word that means to be greatly distressed, highly stirred up, really, really bothered. It means essentially that all of his emotions got stuck into a blender and then turned on where he is really stirred by what is taking place here. He is deeply troubled and feeling that distress in a very real way. You say, well, what's he so troubled about? A lot of things that are going to be unpacked for us in the rest of this gospel. You see, he is troubled at the prospect of his most beloved followers being left by themselves and placed into such danger without him there. He is, he is troubled at the thoughts of the violence that is running at him. He is troubled at the horror of death that he is just about to experience. He is troubled by the coming separation that he knows is coming from his father. But first things first, in the context of this passage, he is troubled, we're told, by the prospect and reality that one of his own men is going to betray him. He is physically moved by what is going on. Your Jesus, you see, he knew love at a very real, visceral, tangible, human level. And sometimes I think it's so easy for us to look at the person of Jesus and say, well, he was God after all. Of course he was able to love in the face of these kinds of obstacles. And that's true. He was truly God. But you know what else is true? He was also truly man as well. And as we see here in this text and others like it, his experience of human emotion and of things like love was precisely the same as your experience of those very same things. Yes, he experienced them perfectly, but he still experienced them in the fullness of what they represented. And so when it comes here to looking at the love of Christ, you can't look at it and say, well, that's some special divine force that was on display through Jesus. No, it's a real emotion that he is grappling with in this moment. And you can see the humanity of that in the verses that come next, 22 and 23. You see, the text goes on to say the disciples, they were looking at one another, uncertain of whom he was speaking. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. You say, what do we see there? We see the fact that this love that has so stirred the heart of Christ, it is being put on display now in the context of normal, everyday kinds of human relationships. The kinds of relationships that you and I have and experience as well. You see, that's what we see happening here. You can't forget about the fact that these men, they, they know each other frontwards and backwards, and that fact leaves them in a condition of just total shock. I mean, they've been traveling, eating, sleeping, living together for three years. There is a high degree of relationship here. And now Jesus says this, one of you is going to betray me. Their shock reveals the depth of the relationship that they all share with one another. And so the text tells us that they begin looking around, obviously wondering, is it you? Is it you? And when there's no apparent person that it could possibly be, they begin to ask, ask the next most obvious question, according to Mark and Luke. Well, Lord, is it, is it me? 
And they, they go one by one, Mark tells us, saying, is it I? Is it I? And even Judas, with hypocritical insincerity dripping from his voice, says, is it I? And Jesus looks at him and says, you have said it yourself, Judas. See, there's deep, profound relationship happening here. But there in verse 23, there's a personal detail that's given that highlights the intimate nature of Jesus' relationships. It's apparent that while Jesus loved all of his followers, he had a particularly close relationship to one in particular, namely John, the author of our gospel, who introduces himself here in this text to us for the first time as being the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you can see that there in the text, very much in the way that they're positioned at the table. See, that's what John says. John, the disciple that Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. See, he's as close to Jesus as one can get, not just relationally, Jesus loves him specifically, but also in proximity as well. He's a matter of inches from Jesus. He is reclining at the table, we're told, which was a custom for this kind of a formal feast where you'd prop yourself on your left arm with your head by the table, your right arm able to access the food, and your feet would be pointing away from the table. And so John is lying here a matter of inches away from Jesus. His back to Jesus' front and that's what I want you to see. For John to see Jesus, he's got to look up and over his shoulder. And when he does that, his head literally ends up resting on Jesus's chest. That is how close Jesus is to these men. Relationships in the room that are as real and genuine as they possibly could be. And that relationship, that love that all of these men share with one another it can be seen in what happens here next in verses 24 to 25 where Peter, who as we've already seen had talked enough that night already, <clears throat> he, he, he motions to John because he's not about to stick his neck out again and he essentially says, he gives him a gesture, I don't know what it was, but something that said, ask who? Like which one is it? Like John, do, do your job, man. You're, you're like right there by Jesus. That's what happens there in verse 24. And so John does. And you can see here just how close he is to Jesus. He, he lays his head back upon the chest of Jesus. That's how close he is. And he asks his question in a voice that only Jesus can hear. Who? Who is it? It's a short, sober question without any kind of commentary. It's the most serious inquiry that John can muster as he locks eyes with Jesus from the short distance of just six inches away. And Jesus responds, apparently in a whispered response, because the information that he gives to John about the traitor, it's only given to John. We know that later on because everybody else is still guessing at who the traitor is, but John knows and he's too stunned to move. You see, this is the most intimate exchange that Jesus has with anybody that night. John's head on his chest, Jesus whispering in his ear. Do you see the love of Jesus for all of his men there in that room? Do you see the love of Jesus that he has there for John specifically? But here's where we really see the love of Jesus. It's in the content of his whispered answer there in verse 26. He says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. See, that's very significant because the action of eating from the same bowl and dipping a piece of bread into a bowl with someone else 
was widely considered in that day to be tantamount to a declaration of intimate friendship. That's what Jesus says will be the sign of his betrayer. The one to whom I turn and offer my hand as a friend, that is the one who is going to betray me, John. That's what he's saying here. A sign of deepest friendship and close intimacy. It'd be kind of like drinking from the same cup. I mean, that's something I'm only willing to do with people like my wife and probably two out of my three kids. (laughs) So it is here. Jesus turns to Judas and offers him the most intimate sign of friendship and love that he can possibly give to him. I mean, the act of of the dipping is recorded twice here in the text. It's clearly important. And in this case, the sauce into which they're dipping this bread would have been a mixture of bitter herbs, indicating the bitterness of what is just about to occur. And look with me at the second half of verse 26. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon from Iscariot. Do you see there? The reality of Jesus' offer to Judas. He doesn't turn to him with hatred in his eyes and spite in return. No, he comes to this one whose feet, by the way, he has already humbled himself and washed. And he offers to him one last extension of intimacy and friendship. And then looks over at John and says, yup, he's the one. Do you see the love of Christ? on display in that simple action. You know, here's another detail that's very interesting. It's apparent from the text here that Judas is seated next to Jesus on his left. He's reclining on his left, a post of honor, by the way. And the fact that Jesus would put Judas in that spot is yet another indication of his loving concern for Judas. And, and based upon the way that they're reclining, Judas's front is facing Jesus's back. See, all night long, Jesus has willingly turned and offered his back to the one that he knows is preparing to stab him in the back. Why? Because it's yet another indication of intimacy and friendship and trust. There is nothing but love being put on display here through the actions of Jesus, even in the face of Judas's black-hearted treachery. And now in this final great display of merciful love and grace, the King of Heaven, the foot-washing King of Heaven, turns to Judas, the backstabber, and offers him a final token of his love. Do you not see the unbelievable, patient, merciful, gracious love of Jesus Christ on display here, even in this darkest of hours? It was his love for his men, his love for John, and even an extension of friendship to Judas himself. Folks, that's the kind of love that your Savior has for you. It is just incredible. Do you not see the light of who Jesus is? The light from heaven, the light of God, who has now come to put in perspective the blackness of who we are. Don't just look at Judas and say, forget you. See in Judas the reality of who you are apart from Jesus Christ. Because your heart is every bit as black as his was. And you too needed the light of Christ to invade and penetrate down into your soul to show you the reality of who you are 
you are. You needed the unbelievably patient love of God now to come and invade your life and transform you so that you would be in a place to receive Him and be reconciled to the Father. That is the offer that Jesus has made here in this text to Judas. And that is the same offer that He has made to every single last one of us. He has brought Judas down to a point of decision. And he has brought every single one of us down to that same point of decision. And now we understand together, do we not? The gravity of John's concluding statement. And it was night. Because next week we're going to see the blackness of his heart. And the choice that Judas makes Don't we see the horrible power of a dark heart on display in this text? But do we not simultaneously see the glorious love and light that has shone forth from heaven for us in this text? You know, I think in retrospect, it's easy for us to look back and say, well, of course, it was Judas, the most notorious traitor of all time. That's who was going to betray him. But I think that our familiarity with this text tends to do us a bit of a disservice because these men, as they experienced this story, the the statements that Jesus makes here about the power of the darkness, it produced a profound fear of the dark within them because none of these men trusted their own hearts. And in the text, when Jesus says, one of you do not know me, one of you is not clean and will betray me, The room erupts into pandemonium as the disciples look at each other uncertain of whom he spoke and began saying to each other, is it I, Lord? You see, that is the question that all of us ought to be walking forth from here asking ourselves this morning. And perhaps you may be sitting here this morning wondering the same thing. How? How can I know if I am a traitor like Judas or if I truly belong to the person of Jesus Christ? Is it I? the one whose heart has been gripped by the power of darkness, or have I been transformed by the light and love of Jesus Christ? Perhaps you too are rightly sitting here this morning afraid of the dark, having seen its power here in this text. Well, friend, let me bring you some clarity and comfort to know exactly how to find the answer to that question about how you can know for sure whether you're in the light or whether the darkness still has its hold over you. You see, the answer to that question has already been given to us in John chapter 3. And so I'd invite you as we conclude here this morning, to turn with me over to John chapter 3, just back a few short chapters. Because in John 3, as Jesus talks to Nicodemus on yet another night, he comes to Nicodemus and he says, look, verse 19, this is the judgment. That word judgment there indicating this is the way by which you know which side of the eternal fence you're going to fall on. This is the judgment. Here's how you know. The light, that's Jesus, has come into the world. And there are only two responses to it. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Friends, that's the way if you know you're still gripped by the darkness. If, when you see the light of Christ on display in a text like this, you look at it and say, that ain't for me. Why? Because my sin is something that I am not willing to part with. 
I love my sin too much to pursue the light of Christ that he has shown down into my life. You see, that's how you know if the darkness has a hold in your life. If you, like Judas, look at the light and you say to yourself, the lights come into the world, but I love my wicked things and therefore I hate the light. I will not accept the righteous sacrifice of Christ on my behalf. I will not pursue the holy standard of God that he judges all men by and I will not walk by faith in Jesus Christ. That one hates the light and is lost in darkness forever. But in direct contrast, Jesus goes on in John chapter 3. He says there's a second pathway, a second judgment that leads to a very different kind of destination. And that's this. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, you have to come to the light. What does that mean? It means that you must embrace through faith the wholeness of who Jesus is, the righteousness and perfection of his standard, having been put forth on your behalf at that cross, that you now cling to his work in the place of your own. That's what it looks like to come to the light. And from that place ever forward, you march now walking in the light faithful to confess your sin as you see it clinging to you, shaking it off and getting rid of it because you know that that darkness does not compare to the beauty of the light and love that Jesus Christ has already offered to you. And so if you're here this morning wondering, darkness or light, light or darkness, all you have to do is just look at how you've responded to the light of Christ that has already been made manifest to you. Do you receive it? Do you embrace it? Do you cling to it, run to it, shunning your sin and believing by faith that Jesus and his work, his cleansing is totally sufficient for you? That is what it looks like to see and know the light. So as we seek to answer the question, is it me? It revolves around your response to the light of Christ. This morning we have seen the power of darkness. And if you're in the darkness, you should be afraid of it. But if you're in the light, friend, you've been made clean already. And we've seen the brilliance of that light. And so this morning I leave you with the same choice that that Jesus laid before Judas. Will you come and walk according to his light? Or will you live according to the darkness of your heart? Let's close in a word of prayer today.